Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the scenes of the episode that don't have to do directly with Laura or the parts of the scenes that don't have to do with her. Um, there's a lot of other material here, too, with the sawmill plot wrapping up. I mean, this is a climax for so many different stories, so there's a lot to dig into. So let's move on to the non-Laura subplots. We have the Packard family life. Uh, we get a nice bit in this episode. So we have Catherine asking for Pete's help to find the ledger, but really more generally, like, she just realizes all these people, she's been running around with Ben behind his back, double dealing, doing all this stuff, and it's like she's realizing at this moment that she couldn't rely on any of those people. They she, she got played, and so finally she just says, you know, I need your help, Pete. I can't, I can't rely on anyone else. And they have this great bit where they talk about their past, how they met. She says he was the lumberjack that could scamper up a tree like a cat, and he calls her the boss's sister from that big house on the hill. And she says, I'm sorry, I never should have taken you up there. And he says, well, I've got no complaints about the house. It's just, it's a great scene. I really like this scene between these two. And we haven't gotten anything like this this season. We just got established in the pilot and continued with that, that they have a frosty, un, unhappy marriage. That's not true. We do have the scene in episode two, which is, get your boots off my bed and go to your room. So we've seen the negative side. Now we're seeing maybe the positive side. I don't know. I mean, she's she rolls her eyes when she hugs her and uh, he hugs her, but uh, there is some affection there, I think, or she's trying to muster it up because she needs it. Piper Laurie has a great quote and reflections about that moment. She says, I loved working with Mark. He could tell me to do things that I wouldn't allow other directors to do, vulgar specific things like rolling my eyes. In my old Universal days when I was 18, it would drive me crazy when directors asked me to do fake or superficial things, but I was confident enough and trusted him. He would give me these tiny little tidbits to fill the moments and scenes to make them funnier. I was timid about doing it, but he encouraged me. I really enjoyed working with him and, of course, in his movie Storyville. Pete discovers uh, an old yearbook in the library. There's like a nice moment there where he's like, oh, and he's like saying the woman's name. I can't remember. It's not Mimsy because that's the Jacoby girlfriend. That's something like that. Uh, but, you know, then uh, Catherine gets a call and he has to sort of leave and let her handle this situation. So he's trying to be helpful, but I don't know how helpful he's being yet. But I think she almost just needs a sense somebody's on her side, you know. And then later at the end of the episode, Pete's at the mill. It's burning down. And uh, he's walking up with this other character, apparently in the name Decker, according to the credits, and is told that Catherine may be in there, her car's here, and Pete says, she is my wife, puts on his goggles and runs in to rescue his wife, heroic, and uh, to the episode, and I don't know, maybe the character, it doesn't look too too good in there, but he's going he's gonna to try. So, you know, as we look at this, we, we wonder, would he have done that if they hadn't had that reconciliation earlier? I think so, but it makes it more dramatically effective that they did so there's nothing for the briggs family life plot and uh second episode of nothing well i take that back i was gonna say it's the second episode of nothing for the horn family life we don't see johnny we don't see sylvia but uh given what we see at the end of the episode there's going to be a big moment for that family coming soon where father and daughter are finding out something about each other that they did not know and probably in a way did not want to know how are they gonna deal with that her being 
working at this place and him being the owner of it. It's a, that old sort of apocryphal story of like the the guy who goes to the, the bordello or whatever and then he finds out it's like that his daughter is working there or something. It's kind of that horror story. On to the Ghostwood Packard Sawmill plot. That's a pretty big one this episode. A lot going on with that here. We have the Icelandic investment aspect of that. The Icelanders are signing a contract with Ben at One-Eyed Jack's. Last couple episodes have been sort of cursory for the Icelanders. Episode 5 was very heavy on them. And in this one and the last one, they don't really pop up till like the episode's almost over and then we get to touch base like, oh, yeah, they're going to sign a contract. So we do get a second scene with them in this where they're signing the contract. They celebrate. Einar puts his signature on it and boom, looks like it's good to go. The big deal they've been working on since the beginning of the pilot. So another thing that started with one of the very first scenes of season one. Now we're getting our, our payoff for it. And then in the last scene, we have Cooper going back to his room and he's talking to Diane and he pauses. He says, I notice with some relief that the Icelandic group staying on my floor have either checked or passed out. And he says he's received his earplugs, which he'll use as a precautionary measure. But, uh, you know, he's he's ready to get some rest. And somebody at his door has other ideas, but that's a whole other storyline. For the mill fire aspect of the Ghostwood Packard mill, uh, we have Leo setting a bomb in a drying shed, and he's tied Shelly up inside there, of course, for their own storyline, which we'll get to in a moment. But he's there to commit arson and make it look like arson. Catherine thought so that Josie would get pinned. I I think this is what's going on. I think I've got a, a bead on this complicated subplot, but... I think Catherine thinks they're setting up Josie to make it look like arson. And, of course, what they're really doing is setting up Catherine. And she gets a call from Hank telling her to come to the uh, the drying shed. What she wants is there, so the ledger. So she goes, but she's kind of worried. She's got a gun and everything. And, of course, her and Pete have been looking for the ledger at the office and at home. And she's just panicked because in the previous episode, she found out that the the, the ledger that I think shows the real... Uh, finances of the, that the mill has been losing money. I don't know if that's actually the real one or not, but they want the ledger to show it's been losing money so that then they can set up Josie. And now it's like, oh man, they took it, they're setting up me. Oh crap. So she goes to the drying shed and uh, and, and before we get there, we have Ben getting a call from Hank about Leo. So we know that Leo set the fire and Hank says, time to black flag the little firebug. And Ben says proceed so that's why leo shot by hank to cover up the plot of what they've been up to so Catherine goes into the mill Catherine walks up to shelly she's going Catherine says i can't understand a word you're saying you have a thing in your mouth and then later uh, when she removes it and shelly's like i'm shelly johnson help me please she's just like be quiet i'm thinking so it's a great scene between these two characters who've never met before apparently not even just in the show but in 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 the life of you know the off-screen life of these characters she doesn't even know who she is coming together and and racing out of this mill and it's a very it's it's sort of ridiculously action movie-esque uh you can even see that it's stunt people in wigs and certain shots and uh the bum 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 we've never heard music like that on twin peaks <laughs> It's like Angelo Badalamenti doing a Lethal Weapon score or something. It's it's pretty funny. And then finally we have Pete running into the mill fire and uh, to to rescue Catherine if she's still in there. And the way this episode is cut, like in order to sustain the drama, we cut away from things and come back like ten minutes later, and it's like right after the previous thing. So are they racing through as Pete runs up or what? What happened? Are they already? Did they get out? Of course, we got to be left with all these cliffhangers. I do love how. 
Pete, or more accurately, the stunt person playing uh, Pete runs. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, this is how Pete would run. Sort of like jogging to the side with his knees out. <laughs> it's pretty funny. For the Shelly, Bobby, and Leo story, we have Shelly alone in her home. She goes to wash her hair in the sink. And there's an interesting moment where she's reaching for the towel. Towel gets pulled away. She reaches again, pulled away. Nice uh, other little kind of visual way of presenting the scene as as Frost likes to do throughout this episode. Leo grabs her. I've got you now or whatever he says. I can't remember, but he's he's like acts like he's hurt and heartbroken. Takes her to the drying shed, ties her up and says he's going to kill Bobby when she hears the alarm go off that's going to kill her. Bobby's already going to be dead and as he's going off she says, "You broke my heart." It's just like, "Really? You're going to like try to play that card now? Come on. That's pretty absurd." And then sure enough, we have Leo trying to kill Bobby later. Uh Leo Bobby comes into the house. Shelly, Shelly, are you here? Opening the door, looking around for her. And uh, the door closes and Leo's waiting there, the crazed axe murderer. And boom, comes after Bobby. Bobby tries to come. Oh, Leo, I was just looking for you. Like, it's great. Like, up till the end, he's trying to play this part. And it looks like he's going to be killed. And boom, Leo is shot through the window. So he's... Bobby is safe. So I said earlier, Bobby's the uh, the only character to get everything he wants this episode. But now that I think about it, like he thinks his girlfriend is dead. Uh, Leo doesn't even say she's gonna die. He says, Shelly's dead. Like I killed her already. You're next. So God, what must be going through Bobby's head at this moment? Uh, although I think he has time to quip later, Leo, or something as he leaves. Leo uh, is livelier than usual in his demonic intensity in this episode and his attempt at pathos to Shelly. Like there's a look on his face when he's going after Bobby. He's like, oh, Bobby, how are you doing? It's like we've never seen Leo kind of enjoy himself except when he killed Bernie. I guess it's the only thing that gives him pleasure in life. Another reason to wonder if maybe he's the one who killed Laura. And uh, in the scene where Catherine rescues Shelley, of of course, uh, she's only in there because of Leah, so I guess we should mention that in this subplot. For the James and Donna romance, we have them comforting each other after hearing Laura's tape. Uh, maybe they can get back to their own relationship, uh, but I, you know, kind of doubt it. It seems like they're still haunted by Laura in some way, and certainly this mystery. For Nadine's Drape Runners... There's no mention of the Drape Runners, but we know that that's, well, we know that's the surface reason that Nadine is upset. But she's suggested in other episodes, there's a hell of a lot going on there. That she wants to impress Ed. She knows that he's always loved Norma, or she knows that he did love Norma. And uh, she's just desperate. This, I think she thought this was her way to solidify her relationship with him. She was going to buy all these nice things and... They didn't They didn't want to give her a patent. So here she is. She's in her pink dress. She sets up a little picnic blanket in the middle of the floor and takes out her pills. They're playing a sort of soft version of the Laura Palmer theme. Or no, the fall. I think the Twin Peaks theme, a soft version of the actual falling theme. And she puts out her pills in her water and she says goodbye. And then Ed comes back and he discovers her on the floor and he's freaking out. And it's kind of a touching scene because we know... In some ways, this would be a relief for him. He's in love with Norma. Nadine is such a burden, but he seems genuinely horrified. And, oh, my God, no, 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 no. Don't do this, Nadine. Don't do this. He calls the hospital. Hurry up, quick. My wife my wife is in a, is, is passed out or whatever he says. She took too many pills, and uh, she's there in his arms. So, you know, they just, they got everything. Every storyline this episode, they've got us in a clinch. For Ed and Norma, we don't have anything this episode. It's just Ed, Ed dealing with Nadine. For Hank and Norma, we have a pretty cool scene where Hank is telling Norma that he wants another chance. And uh, this is like a, a, a just a Frost 
uh, specialty, I think. Like I said in his Hill Street Blues episode, he has a lot of scenes like this. These character moments between two characters kind of facing off, and one of them kind of does most of the talking, the other reacts. So we have a cool establishing shot of the diner at night. Uh, it feels like this is a more yellow episode. Both inside and outside the diner were kind of framing this, these, like the yellow counter and this sort of stuff. Throughout the episode, I got that sense. I'm not sure why, but I think it adds to the feeling of difference, drawing it away from the woodsy sense of, of other episodes. And Hank tells this story about, uh, you know, staying, sitting on these little thin mattresses, and they were so thin, how'd they fit all the all the rocks in, talking about his prison mattress, and how he would lie on there at night and dream of Norma, and he wants another chance, and want to make it blue sky, we're going to make this diner something, as he leans in for a kiss, she lets him, but... The music is playing, and we know it's no good. This is like pretty much framed by scenes of Hank <laughs> killing or preparing to kill people. I mean, he's way worse than we probably thought initially. Nothing for Josie and Harry this episode. Um, we now know the full extent of Josie's perfidy, and uh, how's Harry going to deal with that when it comes to it? We don't know yet. Second episode of Nothing for Bobby Killed a Guy. Uh, that hasn't that came up briefly in the therapy session with Jacoby in a very indirect manner. Um, who knows when it'll come up again? For the subplots introduced in episode one, uh, we for the Cooper and Audrey flirtation, we have Audrey seeing Cooper on camera, and at the end of the episode, he sees her note. But they're like missed connections at this point. For Cocaine and Twin Peaks, the criminal activity and police bookhouse boy investigation are fully merged at this point. We're not seeing like the drug dealers amongst themselves and the cops amongst themselves. They're all interacting. So Hawk and Ed are in their little van out by a bridge listening to Cooper and Jacques. And uh, Cooper sets up this whole meeting with Jacques. He tells him that Leo's been playing him and his brother like fools. Uh, he's been making all the money and that he's the bank, Cooper. You know, his his character that he's created is like the big money behind this drug operation. He wants to deal directly with Jacques. So there's kind of a good alibi here. It's like maybe the sense that he feels like Leo is um, screwing him over and he, he wants for his own benefit to go directly to Jacques. Why, cut you know, cut out the middleman. So it, it's plausible for, for Jacques to fall into. Gives him 10,000. Well, he, he offers him 10,000, even gives him half at this point. So risks giving him the money and him running off, knowing he'll come back for more. And he does. Uh, but again, he's not arrested for the drugs. He's arrested for uh, supposedly killing Laura and attempting to kill Renette. And this scene where they arrest him at this water processing plant with all these lights up around and very industrial scenario. This is like the most Hill Street Blues scene in Twin Peaks between the stakeout setup, the location, the shooting style. There's even some handheld, which we never see on, on Twin Peaks. And the banter about relationships as they're waiting in the car. Ah, women. The tough guy, but ironic tough guy heroics because it's Andy who ends up shooting him. All of that stuff, it just feels very of a piece with, with you know, I guess you could say any cop show, but really Hill Street Blues in particular, I think, uses some of this stuff a lot. Although the frequently used fish metaphors that they keep using, okay, we got one on the line. He's coming, reeling him in and all this stuff. I'm making up those lines. That's not, they, they have better and also slightly cornier lines than that but it never lets us forget that frost is placing a distinctly peaksian twist on this uh, cop show scenario and harry has a ridiculous reaction to Jacques, where he tells him he's arrested and he's all tough and blustery and he turns around Jacques punches the other cop grabs a gun goes to shoot harry and harry goes and he turns around and hides crouches behind the thing so it's another one of those moments where frost lets the actors go uh, shoot over the top for effect. For the uh, subplots introduced in episode two, we have Invitation to Love, a perfectly 
Leo watches Montana dying on screen. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, this direct surreal call out to the relationship between this fictional heightened soap and the soap that you're watching, this is the apex of that. It's hard to imagine this being topped. There is actually kind of, you know, I mentioned there's no uncanny in this episode. This is like the closest to an uncanny sensation we get, where the character is almost looking out at the screen at Leo as they both seem to be dying from being shot. And it's, uh, I, I love this. This is great. I'm a fan of uh, the invitation to love tie and Some people don't like them, but I enjoy them. From uh, the subplots introduced in episode three, this is the third episode of Nothing for the Harry-Albert rivalry. Uh, will we see Albert again? We hope so, because he's a fun character. Now for Andrew's death. Here we get the mother load. That was introduced all the way back in the pilot, but it didn't become a plot until Josie says to Harry, I think Catherine and uh, Ben may have may have had him killed. Nope. Josie had him killed. Hank tells her that he needs more money. She's paying him off for that whole, what he did two or three years ago. And he mentions, uh, you know, he, he gives a whole little speech where he says, or say you, you just got out of prison where you went in for vehicular manslaughter as part of an agreement to avoid being implicated in the commission of a much greater crime, murder, for which, in fact, you were responsible. So he killed, as he puts it, her, I think, her dear late husband or something like that, Andrew Packard, and she's paying him, and he's saying, I need more money, and uh, there's an F, you know, hints because there's an FBI agent in town snooping around, our secrets could come out. Now, at the same time, Josie comes off pretty sympathetically in this scene. Like, we feel she's, like, caught in this web. Like, she's not sort of smirking and sinister like she was with Ben in that scene. So there's this just uh, there's interesting stuff going on with her character here. Is she a victim? Is she a manipulator? Is she both? Why did she have Andrew killed? Is she a pawn in someone's game? What's going on here? This opens up a whole other avenue, I think, that we can hopefully pursue in Season 2. For the subplots introduced in Episode 4, we have Andy and Lucy as a subplot. Their their romance. Uh, set up in Episode 4, but hinted at earlier in the, the pilot. She's comforting him over the phone. Oh, Punky, you know. Or no, she, he calls her Punky. <laughs> she calls... She's saying, oh, sweetie, Andy, you're crying at the train car and all this stuff. But only when she begins to give him the cold shoulder are we getting the sense that it's it's a subplot. So Harry and Andy are talking about Lucy when they're waiting for Shock to come. And Harry asks how it's going. And Andy says, as we say in the law enforcement game, it's a cold trail. But now he's got a shot. Pulled off a heroic act on the job. Lucy's kind of turned on. So they go into the closet. He just closes the door in front of any, everyone and takes her in his arms, kisses her. And Lucy tells him she's pregnant. Door opens. Andy walks out in a complete daze. Walks away. Lucy turns to everyone and storms off. After, you know, very peremptorily offering them coffee. So that's where we are with this. Yet another cliffhanger. Even in this storyline. I love it. Andy's misfire. That pays off finally here. We didn't know if it was just going to be sort of a little gag. Clearly not, because they had him going and firing guns in the shooting range, so they're trying to build up to something, and here we have what it is they're trying to build off from. When Jacques pulls out his gun to fire at Harry, boom, he's shot by somebody off screen, collapses back, and Harry goes, Andy? And Andy's standing there with his gun held out, and, uh, are you all right, Harry? It's just a great little moment. After a two-episode break, we get the, you know, this comes back and, and pays off for us. So, back at the station... 
Ed and Hawk are telling all these cops we've never seen before about Andy's marksmanship. They're all boasting, and Lucy is listening as she waters the plants, clearly getting uh, a little excited by all of it. Now, sexual attraction as a release valve for the stress and adrenaline rush of police work is also a very constant theme on Hill Street Blues. So here we have that kind of building out here. And I don't think I've ever watched a cop show as much as I've watched Hill Street Blues recently. Um, so maybe that's just a pretty common, I'm sure it's common throughout all the cop shows, but it seems like a very particular sub-thread of Hill Street Blues. Like I mentioned before in a previous episode, you'll see characters who like, it doesn't seem like they even need to have a relationship. Like their character's perfectly functional, just knowing what they do on the job and stuff, but they'll still bring that in and have the kind of the hot and cold of it going off. So nothing for Cooper's past this episode. And, uh, there's one new storyline. And that is Cooper is shot three times. So in this episode, with all of these subplots and stories, it's only in literally the last seconds that we open up a whole new subplot. And that could be a main plot, depending what happens to Cooper. So there's a few uh, stories we haven't seen for four or more episodes. The Teresa Banks case since the pilot, Mike Donna romance since episode one. But also we haven't seen a single standalone scene that has no relation to a larger plot since episode three. And I think that was just shots of like the traffic light as mood you could almost make the case those aren't even standalone scenes so it's been a while they've been so busy with all these plots they don't have time to make little sketches along the way nothing for the uncanny this episode as with the last one second in a row that's it for this episode tomorrow we will look at the wider context of the time that this came out may 1990 talk about what was in the magazines what was in the news but also what was on TV that night and, uh, you know, as a counter-programming and surrounding it on ABC and all of that. So please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And uh, to get much, much more material, I mean hundreds and hundreds of hours of material, including all of the other Lost in Twin Peaks episodes coming up that have not yet been unveiled for the public, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Music